If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Paul's letter to Titus. It's after First and Second Timothy, which is the pastoral letters that follow his letters to the Thessalonian church. As we turn to God's word, let's turn to him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Father, may your word, as applied by your Spirit, have its way with us today. And Father, as we just sang, we look forward to you setting all of your people free from all of their sin and sorrow. That's only by grace, by grace alone, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going from one extreme to another, uh, from a 59-week series to a two-week Series, If you can even call it a series, I mean, maybe part one and part two, a two-week mini-series, The Banners of Truth. Well, where did this name come from? Well, look up here to my right and to my left. You see biblical truth being presented. And some of you may be familiar with The Banner of Truth Trust. It's a parachurch ministry in the United Kingdom that was founded in the 1950s for, as they say on their website, for the advancement and dissemination of the knowledge and understanding of the Christian faith. I think that fits in well here as we hope to grow in our understanding of biblical truth and our desire to put it into practice through the work of God's Holy Spirit. Well, this week, its grace has appeared and next week it will be peace has arrived. Paul starts all of his letters and finishes most of them, as I hope you saw, with those words, grace and peace. And I love the book of Ephesians. In fact, before this church became public, when it started as a little Bible study in our family room, we our first study was Ephesians. Why? Because of the gospel that is displayed there, and in particular, the church, the establishment of the church. And at the beginning of Ephesians is grace and peace, and at the end of Ephesians is peace and grace. It's, it's the bookends of that marvelous six-chapter letter. Grace and peace. Did you know that that is Greek and Hebrew? It's representing the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. It's the cause and effect of the gospel. Because grace has appeared, peace has arrived. The name of this church, that is the good news of the gospel of God's grace and peace, serves as both an anchor holding us to the historic Christian faith, as well as an engine driving us outward into one another's lives and outward into the community. The gospel of God's grace and peace in Jesus. The gospel. Good news. The gospel is not good advice. 
Every other religion presents advice. Only Christianity presents news. This morning on Turfway Road, I come up to this intersection. And as is often the case, I get stuck at the light, which for my definition of eternity, sometimes that's pretty close. I can't take a right on red because there's two signs up there. It says no right on red, so I'm stuck. And this morning, as I'm stuck, I look off to the right and you see those signs there that are stuck in the grass or posted onto the telephone pole. Well, this morning was psychic. And all of the services provided. And at the bottom it said, advice on all matters. My friends, the world is looking for advice and people are to make a buck and otherwise are going to provide it. But it is not life-giving advice because it's advice. It's not life-giving news. And at the heart of the gospel of good news is grace. And so having a right knowledge and understanding of grace is absolutely essential to being able to rightly, as it were, read the news, understand the news, and, and watch your life be transformed by that news. Now, why does grace matter? I believe there are common but wrong views of grace out there. A common but wrong view of grace is this. Grace fills in the gap. It makes up for what we lack. You know, we get so far and then God's grace finishes. We, we get to 90% and then God's grace finishes with the 10% that we need. And another common but wrong view of grace is this, that grace gives you a second chance. I remember watching a movie once where the, the, one of the actors um, portrayed a character and he was living a rebellious, crazy life and he, he, he got saved. He got baptized. He went under the water and he came up a new man and he was so excited that grace had covered all his sins and he told his friends that now I get to do it right. Now I get to, 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 to do it right. I messed up, but now I can do it right. As if grace is somehow a second chance to save yourself. Now in view of these wrong views of grace, uh, the front man for the global super group U2, Bono, says this in an interview. It's a powerful idea, grace. It really is. We hear so much about karma and what you put out you will receive. And even Christianity, which is supposed to be about grace, has turned redemption into good manners or the right accent or good works or whatever. I just can't get over grace. Now, if you get grace wrong, you get the gospel wrong. For grace is at the heart of the gospel. And if you get the gospel, the central message of Christianity wrong, you get Christianity wrong. And if you get Christianity wrong, you're still on the outside. You're still lost and dead. Well, today we're going to take a look at a passage from one of Paul's pastoral letters. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14 provides a right view of grace. In fact, I believe it's one of the most comprehensive descriptions of grace in all of Scripture. Join with me as I read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, so far we've acknowledged why grace matters. Our text will help us understand a few more things about grace. Let's start with this, what grace does. From verse 11, we see grace saves. He starts off, for the grace of God has appeared for, because in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, he's presented some teaching on how to live the Christian life. Now here's the why, the scriptural doctrine for the ethical demands. Notice it's past action. God has intervened in history. It's the incarnation. Galatians 4, we read, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Notice it's the expression, the grace of God. A concise statement to sum up all of God's actions on the behalf of His people. Now what do we mean by grace? There are several senses in Scripture, but here it is unmerited favor given to those who deserve His wrath. If mercy is not getting what we deserve, then grace is getting what we don't deserve. And to be sure, in many of his letters, Paul brings mercy and grace together, and at times they're almost indistinguishable. But grace is getting what we don't deserve. And the grace that we just sang about, as we sang indeed, is truly amazing. Now in the preface to his book, By Grace Alone, How the Grace of God Amazes Me by Sinclair Ferguson, are these words, quote, Being amazed by God's grace is a sign of spiritual vitality. It is a litmus test of how firm and real is our grasp of the Christian gospel and how close is our walk with Jesus Christ. The growing Christian finds that the grace of God astonishes and amazes. Yet we frequently take the grace of God for granted. We think, of course God is gracious. Or, of course we deserve His grace. After all, are we not His people? We may never say these things. But when we think like this, the grace of God ceases to be amazing. Sadly, it also ceases to be grace. These are great words helping us understand the amazing part of amazing grace. And notice that this grace of God that has appeared brings salvation for all people. It's not a proof text for universal salvation. The rest of the Word of God won't allow that kind of interpretation. Rather, it means all kinds of people, old, young, men, women, Jew, Gentile. It's the context of Titus itself, as we could read earlier. 
Now, what effect did the appearance of grace have? Well, it brought salvation. Well, what else does grace do? Grace trains. And we see that in verse 12 as saving grace becomes training grace. Whereas saving grace was past action here, it's present action. Training. Some translations teaches. Yet more than instruction, it's training involving instruction, encouragement, correction, and discipline. It reminds me of uh, one of the Navy's commands, the, the um, Department of Training and Education. It's both. And it teaches two lessons. It trains in two directions. Did you see that? A negative direction or saying no, but also a positive direction in saying yes. And grace trains us to say no to ungodliness, no to impiety, no to ignoring or disregarding God, no to not taking God seriously. I mean, ungodliness, I mean, think about it. We might think of a list of of character qualities that ungodliness kind of um, sums up, but if you think about living as a practical atheist, by not taking God into account in your life, you are being ungodly. He's not involved in your life, as it were. Not only no to ungodliness, but no to worldly passions. No to living according to the world's standards for significance and success, such as pleasure, possessions, and prominence. A decisive break has been made. My friends, open up a newspaper, a magazine, a television, a smartphone, colleagues at work, and if they're not pursuing the Lord, they are pursuing worldly passions. And the grace of God enables us to say no. But not just to say no, but to say yes. To yes to self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. A right relationship with ourselves, with one another, and most significantly with the Lord. Saying yes to living a life not with God at the priority, So that once you get through with God at the top of your day, you live the rest of your day in absence of God. But with God at the center, the hub of your day and life. And when are we doing this? In the present age. It's another reinforcement of this idea that this is ongoing. It's in the present. Grace saves, Paul is telling Titus. Grace trains and grace orients. And we see that at the beginning of verse 3. A present action waiting, but a present action that's focused on a future event. It's a movement from the appearing of grace to the appearing of glory. What does orient mean? Orient means this, to cause or face or point, to cause to face or point to the east. To the Orient. But it also means to set right by adjusting to facts or principles. Anybody used a compass before and a map? Come on, all you older guys out there on hikes and trails. Yes, yes, compass. What is that, that, that skill, that discipline of using a compass and map called? Orienteering. 
orienteering. Jesus appeared in humility. He will reappear in glory. Christ is the supreme object of the Christian hope. Christ is the north of which our compass points to. My friends, the hope of the believer, the hope of you and me is not that finally one day we will get it all together. Rather, our hope is that Christ will come again, that he will return. So we've seen that grace saves, grace trains, and grace orients. Grace orients us to a person. Who grace is. You know, I could have said what grace is, but I wanted to quickly get to it. Who grace is. Grace is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that at the end of verse 13 into 14. Grace is a person. Grace is not an abstract theory or concept, nor is it some theological intellectual construction. Grace is not even a copyrighted or a trademark of reform theology. As cool as that sounds, grace is a person. In the preface to that book, By Grace Alone, How the Grace of God Amazes Me, Ferguson concludes with these words, Grace is not a thing. It is not a substance that can be measured or a commodity to be distributed. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, it is Jesus Himself. And in our Something to Think About quote this week, expands on that thought in an interview that he did. God's grace has already appeared in the Old Testament. We saw that in the Old Testament reading of of singing, as it were, of Psalm 130, that hymn by Martin Luther. Out of the depths we cried, and God forgives. Grace is present, but grace appears visibly in Jesus. His miraculous birth, His perfect life, His sin-atoning death, and His victorious resurrection. And when we read these words, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, here is one of the clearest, concisest affirmations of Jesus' divinity in the all of Scripture. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, verse 14 helps us understand who is this great God and Savior. He's the one who gave Himself on the cross. Remember Mark 10, 45? For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Why did Christ give Himself? For two reasons. First, our our passage is clear, to redeem us. To redeem us individually. The focus is on the individual. Not just to forgive. That is true elsewhere. But to redeem us. In the fullness of time, God sent Jesus to redeem those who were under the law. Here we have echoes of the Old Testament language of the Exodus. The redemption through blood. The redemption through the leadership of Moses. The redemption through the parting of the waters. The redemption through God's leading and protection in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. To redeem us from what? From all lawlessness. 
Now, any one of us here could get our pictures up at the post office. You want your picture displayed? Get on the FBI most wanted list, and your picture will be displayed. You know, you don't even have to have a Facebook account to get your face out there. Just commit murder. Be on the run. Steal. Be on the run. You'll get your, your picture in the post office. But it, lawlessness is not just those activities, but grumbling and gossip. Adultery, not just in the physical act itself, but looking as, at people as objects to satisfy your lust. Stealing. Not just stealing, but, but living as if the financial bottom line was the most important thing. Not only to redeem us, but also to purify for himself a people. And here the focus is, is, is on the people of God, the church, for himself, a people for his own possession. A people who belong to Jesus. The English translations cannot capture in totality what is being communicated here. That, that the church, God's people, are owned and loved by Jesus. They are his own people. But they are a people zealous for good works. They've got a motivation, the grace of God and salvation, and they've also got a motivation that they belong to Jesus. Titus, the letter, is all about grace, but it's also all about the good works that flow from a life being transformed by the grace of God. Now, let me ask you all this question. What are you eager to do? What are you eager to do? What are you enthusiast? What are you enthusiastic about? Grace trains us to be enthusiasts about good works. Would someone call you a zealot? Would someone think you're a little out of balance, extreme? Would they call you a zealot about good works? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, great. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. But children, what comes after verse 9? Say it, verse what? 10, yes. And what does verse 10 say? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should work, walk in them. What God has joined together, salvation by grace, and a life of good works that flow from that. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Now in looking ahead to the future, did you notice Paul looks back to this historic act of redemption, Christ's life and death for us, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Have you noticed that this passage that we've looked at and are looking at is bracketed by two advents? The first and second comings of Jesus Christ has appeared and the coming appearing. Here in four, in four short verses are the two endpoints of the Christian era. John Stott, the late British theologian and pastor, 
says this. The best way to live now in this present age is to learn to do spiritually what is impossible physically. Namely, to look in opposite directions at the same time. In other words, in order to live the Christian life now in the present, we must simultaneously look back on his incarnation and look forward to his return. In other words, we live today in light of both yesterday and in light of tomorrow. So we've seen from our passage that grace saves from death to life. Grace trains from life to more life. And grace orients us from present life on earth to a future life in heaven, from suffering to glory. Grace orients us to a person, a person who showed up, a person who arrived and got to work. Let's take a look now at how grace works. Well, what did Jesus come to do? We saw much from our study of Mark, of what Jesus came to do, to call sinners, to serve, to die, to rescue and restore. But in Luke 4, we read this, that Jesus says, I've been sent to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus said he came to set at liberty those who were enslaved. He said that he came to seek and save the lost. Paul writes Timothy, as we heard earlier in our confession of sin, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And in the Gospels, we see change going on around Jesus all the time. The dead are raised to life. The cripple are healed. The mute speak. The lame walk. Change is taking place all around Jesus. Change. So simple, so obvious, yet in the Christian culture, many of us tend to, 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 um, to think one and done. The quick fix, the pat answer, Just do this. Pray more. Just read the Bible more. My friends, the word just will kill you. Just pray more? Just read the Bible more? Are you kidding? As we saw and heard for those of us in the youth and adult Sunday school class, change is difficult. It is hard. It is death. It is transformation in blood, sweat, and tears. My friends, there is only one quick fix. The return of the Lord. Everything else is a long, slow process in the same direction. Now this brings us to the question, how does grace change us? Exactly how does grace train us? That's the focus of this passage. We know, or at least we should know, that grace saves. But how can we also say with confidence that grace trains us? In other words, how does grace bring about the change? How is grace the fuel for change? So here's the question. How are you and I trained by grace? We are trained 
by continually going back to the gospel, the gospel of God's grace in Christ Jesus. And one way to understand and appreciate the gospel is to realize what we say fairly often, that Jesus lived the life that we should live, but he also died the death that we deserve to die for the rebellious life that we do live. And he did this for us and in our place. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, He, that is God the Father, made Jesus, that is Jesus the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He goes on to write in chapter 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. Because in the mirror of the gospel, we recognize that we are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared believe. Yet through the window of the gospel, we also recognize that we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope at the same time. We see our sin and we see our Savior at the same time. So here in his letter to Titus, Paul is making the argument that we obey. We say no, we say yes Not in order to be accepted or saved by God, but rather we obey because we have already been accepted or saved by God. We obey out of gratitude, as the Heidelberg Catechism makes clear. That is radical. This is revolutionary, my friends. This is the logic of the gospel. The fuel... The fuel of grace is the gospel itself. Grace changes the got to into the want to. Because grace changes us at the level of our desires. Do any of you all have a favorite Olympic athlete? A favorite college athlete? Children, think about somebody you admire in the, say, the athletic world, for instance. It's much bigger than the got to of their training. is the want to of their training. Got to only gets you so far. Want to gets you, as it were, all the way. Again, grace changes us at the level of our desires. Outward conformity is much easier than inward alignment to the gospel. That's why legalism, salvation by works, is so tempting. It's easier. Well, what have we learned from this one long, complex sentence in the original language. First, grace appeared in Jesus Christ. Grace is personal. I think we've all heard the statement, don't take it personally. Well, when it comes to grace, you've got to take it personally. Not only has grace arrived in the person and work of Jesus, but also grace continues to arrive through the means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and prayer, the fellowship of God's people. And grace will arrive in glory when Christ returns. As we've seen, grace has past, present, and future dimensions. Therefore, we need to say regularly with the church down through the ages, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And second, The grace that appears is a robust grace. It is not some kind of legalistic, condemning grace whipping us into shape through a version of stoicism. 
Yet nonetheless, it is an intolerant grace because it's grace unto change. And so finally we learn, third we learn this, that grace appeared in order to change us. Grace did not appear to make already good lives a little bit better. Years ago, I remember this commercial from BASF. We don't make a lot of the products you buy. We make a lot of the products you buy better. No, that's not grace. Home Depot used to have the advertisement. You can do it. We can help. No, the gospel says you cannot do it, but Christ has done it for you. From beginning to end, salvation is by grace. Grace does not provide a second chance to do it right from now on, but rather it provides you and me with a new status with God and a new desire and new ability to no longer live for ourselves, but for Him. Grace changes our got to into our want to. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works." The grace of God made known to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ came to save us, to train us, and to orient us. God's grace, that is Jesus Christ, comes to you where you are, but doesn't leave you where you are. God's grace, again, being Jesus Christ, comes to you as you are, but He doesn't leave you where you are. No. He moves you. He, by the powerful working of His Holy Spirit, transforms you and me from one degree of glory into another. And the change that His grace brings not only displays the glory of God, but His goodness to His people as we are conformed more and more into the image of our Savior and thus fitted to be with Him and with His people for all eternity. My friends, the Christian life here and now is all of grace. It's all of amazing grace. Grace that in the words of the hymn, grace unmeasured, paid for my sins and brought me to life. Grace that clothes me with power to do what is right. Grace that will lead me to heaven where we'll see His face and never cease to thank Him for His grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Amazing grace, how life-transforming the reality. May we all more and more know and understand the grace of God found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And may we all more and more experience His life-transforming power. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, Forgive us for our careless attitude toward grace.
forgive us for thinking that grace is like a few extra days to pay a bill that is due. Oh, Father, help us to never not be amazed by grace. We thank you, Father, that your grace fully and finally has appeared in the person and work of Jesus. And help us, Father, indeed, to look back on his first coming for us and for our salvation. And to look forward to his, his return when all that is wrong will be made right and we will be changed in an instant and we will be in your presence forever. Oh, Father, in light of the past and the future, help us to live well in the present, humbly depending upon your grace and helping and encouraging others to do the same. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.